Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pets podcast. I am Tegan, this is Yoram, and we are here to do things, talk about things. Hello, I'm Yoram. I well talk done, about Yoram. things. Yeah, you do. Um, Yoram, tell yeah. us. <laughs> you have begun a new work. You have... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've begun a new work. It's my first week in a new job. And um, yeah, so far it's been really fun, but like lots of onboarding. Lots of reading, lots of figuring stuff out, but it's all really cool. I'm really excited. Um, so yeah, that's like there's not that much to tell yet. Um, uh, but I did something else that I have more to tell about, and that was on last weekend. There was the Bits and Bäume conference in Berlin. Um, it's all about uh, sustainability and the digital world and ecology and economy. Um, and lots of stuff like that. Like, unfortunately, most of the talks were in German, so not that relevant to to everyone. But they had a couple of English talks there that um, that you can find recorded. I'm putting a link there. And I think the story that I liked the most there that I that I heard about it's somewhat plant relevant. Is the idea that we should not um, continue to plant trees and then sell carbon credits for it? It's something that was also mentioned in an episode of last week tonight, a couple of weeks ago. The whole idea of carbon credits can actually be quite harmful, and I found that very interesting. And the thing that I want to share about this this talk is the idea of whenever you see a place that doesn't have a forest, and you are in the business of putting forests in places, uh, ask yourself, why is there no forest here? Because very often there is a reason why there is no forest, and that reason is not only because evil companies are trying to stop forests from being there, but for example, areas can get flooded, or areas don't have enough water to support trees, and by putting a lot of effort in planting trees in these areas, uh, you'll just set them up for failure a couple of years down the road. And there have been like stories that made the news where like three million dollar projects were inundated like three years after they planted like thousands of saplings because they put mm. them in a place that regular gets flooded. Uh, because they didn't ask themselves why is there no tr no forest here before they try to put a forest there, and I think that's a very important question. So why is there no forest here? Is something that I ask myself now on a daily basis. Just as you're going through your day to day life, yeah. like in the in the, city. In the supermarket, like, yes, subway stations. Yeah, why is there no forest here? <laughs> Is there is there a link to that talk specifically, or is that auf Deutsch also? That's also auf Deutsch, but I can link okay. to the last week tonight show. That's pretty much has similar ideas. It's focused a bit more on the political side of the carbon credit problem, but it's a similar idea that um, reforestation for the sake of selling carbon credits is not very helpful. Reforestation is helpful, but selling then carbon credits is not helpful. Yeah. I think there's there's been a lot of discussions about this in the the scientific um, community who's dealing with these kind of nature based solutions. They're not looking at the financial and political side as much as looking at you know what can be done with afforestation. And yeah, this has definitely come up that yeah, for putting forests in for forest sake is not the answer. It should be done thoughtfully. You know, thinking about biodiversity, thinking about the people in the region and the socioeconomic consequences and all of this stuff. Yeah. So this is like quite a big theme um, and I also went to a conference on this topic um, some months back and there was definitely some discussion especially coming from indigenous peoples or people with connections to these communities who were saying that there is this risk that this desire to put forests everywhere is becoming a kind of like neo-colonial ecology thing where it's like yeah yeah not not very not great basically yeah the 
Yeah, especially when we're like we're, we run out of um, places to put forests in densely populated Europe, so we go to other places in the world that are not as densely populated and then try to offset our wrongdoing in Central Europe by putting trees elsewhere and then saying, look, we did something good. And that's like, the world is not simple like that. And that's, I think, the main takeaway, that um, it requires much more careful uh, efforts to stabilize or like to, to bind carbon in the soil. Did anything else exciting happen last weekend, Joram? You visited me. <laughs> that was good. I mean, not specifically you, but sure. Like I was in Berlin, <laughs> like yeah. you were there. No, I did visit you. Yeah, I had a nice time coming to Berlin. Ber uh, Germany had its reunification day, I think, was this holiday, which mm -hmm. is when Germany became one Germany again after the fall of the wall. Um, so basically it was a public holiday, which gave me an excuse to go and visit people and play around with them when they had a day off. That was yeah. really nice. Yeah, it's a yeah. good holiday. Shall we talk about some plants? Yeah. If you don't want to hear my rant about hard seltzer. My favorite plant. <laughs> so today I am bringing a my favorite plant, which is a plant that I came across in the wide, wild world, or at least the wild urban environment, aka within my office reception area in a nice floral arrangement. And amongst the beautiful roses and peonies and whatever it was, it wasn't those, it was something that was autumnal and in season, was basically a stick, which at regular intervals had these kind of hairy balls hanging off them, um, going off the stick. And we didn't know what this was. I sort of like, they're kind of fluffy and balloon-like, so they were clearly quite hollow inside. Um, but one of them had um, shriveled into a less fluffy ball and more of a shriveled ball and you could feel that there was something sort of hard inside it if you poked it and I peeled a little bit of one of the the balloon like balls open and you could see that there was inside like a seed pod so sort of a, another structure that had like dark black seeds on it and I've never seen anything like this before at least to my knowledge um and if there it was just being there in my office without like an identifying tag on it which I think is very rude I think frankly <laughs> there should be a company that specializes in floral arrangements, which also includes like the species and common names of the plants. But luckily we have modern technology and not be me, but one of my colleagues um, had one of those plant identifying apps on her phone. So within about 30 seconds, we had at least the genus name, if not also the species name. So the genus is Gomphocarpus. And I that sounds to me, Gompho sounds related to the balls. I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't have the etymology on the page, but Gomphocarpus. Um, and then Physocarpus is the species name. And this is commonly known as hairy balls or balloon plant or balloon cotton bush or bishop's balls or nail head, which is a little bit, I don't get it, or a swan plant. And I think the swan plant refers to the fact that the angle at which the, the hairy balls like attach to the main stem sort of have that swan neck. So that's kind of what makes it quite fun. You've got a bit of a swan neck and then sort of a balloon-like hairy ball. So if you tap the balloon, it sort of wiggles around on this 
swan neck and yes you'd better believe i spent <laughs> a few minutes being like "Ooh, <laughs> like what's this so this is quite a common um plant it's native to southeast africa but it's been sort of spread throughout the world and apparently according to wikipedia it's quite commonly used in this ornamental plant um setup i'm kind of wondering if it's one of those things that now i've seen it i'll just see it everywhere um and yeah it's basically just pretty common it's grows on roadsides it's pretty hardy and happy it does have some sort of um, medicinal value so it's been used to treat warts um the seeds have also been linked to like ritualistic uses i saw a that the the chloroplast genome or the plaster genome for one of the gomphocarpus species, not the um, physocarpus, but a, like a cousin, has just been published a few weeks ago. And in that, they mentioned that this species is quite important medicinally. So I think, um, again, it's like kind of a, a natural traditional medicine kind of plants. And apart from that, this, I don't think much is really said about it, um, except for one of the other interesting things it is that it's a food for a certain type of butterflies including monarch butterflies so different members of these genus are found in different parts and where they naturalize they tend to act as the food for monarchs which move around the world but that's it i strongly encourage you to go and take a look at the pictures because it's really hard to describe actually i think we should have something where i explain and yoram has to draw what i'm explaining because <laughs> i don't think i did super well but like no, you no, can't no, go no. wrong with the, the, the visual of a hairy ball plant. Like that's Yeah, I think that's that's very on point. I think um like you, you think it's 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 a more wide description, but it's a very accurate description of it. Yeah. Um and yeah. It's uh it's it's fun to just browse through the entire like Google image search for it because uh, it's um these are hairy balls on plant sticks. It's also one of these things where you wonder how much it became popular. Like it says it's popular as an ornamental plant, but how much is its inclusion in, you know, floral arrangements just because every time somebody sees it, they like poke it and go tee hee hee. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's objectively beautiful. It's definitely objectively interesting, but. Yeah. I, I want to talk to the person who called them bishop's balls. Because yeah. that's really upsetting. That's an, that's not a name that I would like to see for any anything ornamental, especially not ornamental plants. Anyway, that is my favorite plant of the week, which is Gomphocarpus physocarpus or bishop's balls. I have a fact that's plant related, but also all life related, um, because all life uses the same energy currency and now there has been a study that gives an idea why that is and i found that a very interesting question and that's why i wanted to bring that up here so atp um, adenosine tree phosphate is the main energy currency in pretty much all life uh, it's it's made by plants during photosynthesis it's the, uh, made during respiration also in plants but then also in animals for example when they uh, digest food then they make atp and that then can in turn, again, be used in all kinds of metabolic processes as a way to transport chemical energy from one place to another and use it. And uh, the energy lies in this phosphate binding. So there is a tree phosphate gives us already the idea that it has three phosphates attached to a fairly complicated uh, main molecular structure. Um, and then when one phosphate is cleaved off, some energy is released and that can then be used. And the question has now been like, 
adenosine triphosphate is a fairly complex structure and the energy in a phosphate bond is the same whether you attach the phosphate to something simple or to something complicated. And so the question was like, how did this thing evolve? How did this molecule become the standard, the, the, the currency in pretty much all life? Mm -hmm. um, and that's something simpler when it, because it had to happen very early during evolution to have made it in all species. If it, if it would have been something that came up later, we would see some divergence where sort of later during evolution they use ATP because it might be more stable or whatever and other branches use something else. And yeah. there's something that some others use, some bacteria use um, ACP and this is acetyl phosphate. This is just, this is a very simple molecule. Um, and now researchers have found that this ACP molecule can be the reason why we find ATP everywhere in life because um, they mixed ACP and ADP, so adenosine D-phosphate, when it only has two phosphate groups, together with the ACP and some iron ions in water, in just clear water at room temperature, um, and some phosphates, some free phosphates. And the ACP worked as a catalyzer together with the, um, uh, with the iron ions to make ATP. And the ATP mm -hmm. was then uh, stable, and they think this could explain how ATP could enrich in sort of water at mild, rather mild temperatures and then accumulate and then be become the starting point for all kinds of other weird biochemical reactions. And then later on when, and this is stuff that they expect to happen um, before life. So in prebiotic conditions. So when there was just like a soup of all kinds of weird organic molecules hanging out, um, the, the simple presence of iron ions was enough to catalyze that reaction. And, it was only iron ions. So they tried different other metal ions and other things, and none of them catalyzed this reaction from ADP to ATP, only when iron was there. So it seemed to be a, a very specific and then very stable, and that, that were the right conditions to then make this sort of essential molecule for energy metabolism in, in all of life. Uh, and then later on, then this became part like ATP um, structures or similar structures were then also uh, integrated in the genetic code and so on and then it, it became like a very important molecule that was kept around also for other reasons and just for this like simple biosynthesis for it um but yeah this uh this is still like it doesn't give us the final answer but a very strong hint at why pretty much everything from the tiniest bacterium to us and plants and everything uses atp um instead of something else that also would bind phosphates Speaking of iron, <laughs> I actually have something that I just found like now and it's a bit beyond me. <laughs> um, it's in the journal Plant Science and it is published, I think, quite recently, but it's a review discussing the topic of iron sulfur complexes and how they might have a role in magnetic induction in plants. And this is not something that I've ever come across before, and I have questions, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, um, there's iron-sulfur complexes, so sort of like iron-sulfur clusters, FES clusters are involved in lots of very important biological functions, um, and they're found, yeah, basically all around. 
Um, and then there's also these uh, sort of scaffold proteins that are involved in their assembly. These are called iron sulfur complex assembly scaffold proteins. It's kind of a self-explanatory name, I guess. And these are involved in abiotic stress responses. But they also have a role in some organisms in acting as a magnetic sensor. So they form these complexes with cryptochromes, um, other molecules, and then have this form in sensing magnets. The other organisms in question here are not plants. They are specifically pigeons. Um, so this is where we're going to a slightly weird place. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that, like... Magnetic sensing is used for orientation, and that makes sense in birds, migratory birds, mm -hmm. pigeons that are uh, famously known for being homing pigeons. They can navigate very well, and so they it makes sense. But I don't understand why a plant would want to sense the magnetic field when it clearly can't move according to the field. It doesn't really matter to a plant where north is, apart from the sun, but then sensing the sunlight direction is much easier then sensing the magnetic field and then figuring out where north is and then in turn figuring out where the sun is from that. I would imagine. But so why, do we know? So I, I tend to agree with you. So this is basically a review that is um, sort of a perspective, something forward-looking, and they're proposing looking into this thing. So they're basically saying, look, there's these ISCA proteins, so these iron sulfur um What's the C stand for now? Cluster Clusters. assembly. No, iron sulfur complex assembly scaffold proteins. And there's homologous ones in the pigeons as there are also in humans. And there are at least four of those also in our Rhabdopsis, our favorite plant. And they're suggesting that these should be looked into more for understanding magnetic induction in in mm -hmm. other organisms but i would go on the definitely the other argument which is like these things exist and they sort of developed a different function in the birds as you know there is this yeah. common ancestor of these these proteins that are needed for very key functions all throughout different cells different cells across all these kingdoms of life or all these groups of organisms and then in the birds specifically they've become this one thing yeah yeah, that would be my argument. But this is a review um, arguing for looking into this in Arabidopsis. Yeah. Which actually, uh, maybe you have some comments first, but otherwise I, it brings me to one of my <laughs> other points of the week. Yeah, I, I just, yeah, I, I can't really imagine a way how that would benefit plants from not, like orienting themselves in the magnetic field. Like we've seen all kinds of weird studies that show that the magnetic field has some effect. Like I, I remember there was like one Ig Nobel Prize for um, looking at dogs, how they align themselves in the magnetic field when they defecate. And mm -hmm. there has been, they, they, they found that they orient, orient themselves in a certain direction according to a magnetic field. Um, pretty much all dogs on, on average do that. Um, so like they have, there's all kinds of things that go beyond just, just like homing pigeons on and navigating birds but still in plants i can't really make up a way how plants would use that uh, sort of how, how that would be an advantage to them so i'm 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 interested but skeptical about like magnetic sensing in plants maybe it's not a plant maybe it's a mobile very highly mobile <laughs> organism 
There's nothing I can think of that can, like, there's nothing that can move large distances. Like, there's no migration potential. Or the things that do, they don't have control over their migration. I mean, there's not this, like, big... Yeah. And Things like, are moving with currents in the ocean a lot, but yeah, I, no, yeah, when, I, I when, can't think of anything. When plants move, they move within generations. They don't move within, like, one organism stays planted and then they disperse something. And I don't really think that the, the seed dispersal is magnetically controlled because it's not active transport. So yeah, anyway... Um, it's it's at the beginning of the of research. Maybe um, we'll all. I'm, like, I'm gonna be honest. I I can't get access to this, so I, I kind of want to see what the arguments are why this would be relevant. I mean, so they're saying that there have been yeah plant responses to varying magnetic fields shown. Um, I mostly just like that the graphical act abstract involves both pigeons, Drosophila, and Arabidopsis, all in one figure. So, so what they're really doing is like we, we're going to get homing Arabidopsis. We can put Arabidopsis yeah. somewhere out in the field and a couple of weeks later it will be back home because it found its way back home. I mean, that's nice. So I think um, <laughs> Yoram and I have questions about the, the plants and the magnets and what, what the hell they could be doing. Maybe they're wearing like fashionable 90s jewelries and that's part of the whole evolutionary <laughs> process. We're not really sure. But um, it does kind of link to one of the other things, which is this week is sort of the Nobel Prize winner week. So we've already had a couple of prizes announced. We just had the literature announced today. Um, we're recording on Thursday. We've had the chemistry come through and the physics come through mm -hmm. and um, medicine and physiology and medicine and physiology so far nothing on plants which sure it's what we expect <laughs> um, weirdly there's not like a plant category or i guess like yeah the biology is kind of medicine and nah um but there was a quote that came out through the nature briefings i saw it which was from the Nobel prize winner anton zeilinger and this is my advice to young people would be to do what you find interesting and don't care too much about possible applications. So this sort of leads in from our science where we're not sure what the meaning of it is in my way. But it also leads into this kind of bias discussion that we've had. And I was quite interested to see that in the same email, the same briefing, there was a discussion, an opinion piece by somebody called Melissa Flagg, who was discussing the fact that we reward research that is flashy or sexy too much. And they were pointing out the fact that we need to stop always just going for the sexy stuff um, and instead going for things that actually have more real world value. So it's not just the fact that like by looking at the sexy stuff we miss other really important science that might not seem as like amazing but still has a lot of value. It's also that if you keep on looking at new 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 you don't have follow through with the older stuff. So basically you end up never getting stuff that actually gets put in applic into application and actually has real value to society. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of this discussion of moving from discovery to real world change. 
That's something, uh, weirdly enough, that's also coming up in my, like, I'm, I'm looking more and more into, like, digital tools and digi digital development, and exactly the same principle applies here, where there's lots of funding and, and ways to, like, come up with a fancy new algorithm or something very cool and flashy, some technology, but the maintenance of infrastructure is something that's very underfunded and has, like, most people don't really care for that, but the infrastructure is actually what fuels all our technical life and in science i think it's the same like the the continuous development of ideas and of technologies and of research is what then really gives us like massive new tools and improvements and not just the, the flashy first initial discoveries of something um, CRISPR, for example, is such an example where they had some cool discovery in the beginning, and if we would have stopped there, we wouldn't have gotten to the tool that is then actually now very famously used for pretty much everything in molecular biology. Uh, but that was like a long, like continuous work on the same idea. We could have also stopped at like, oh, bacteria, they have an immune system. How exciting. Let's move on and find something else about bacteria. But there have been like a group of people who continue to work on that and understand that. And then other people came with a different perspective and then they developed a tool. And so, yeah, it's, it's really crucial that we don't just do the flashy science. Mm. And CRISPR is a very good segue <laughs> to my next topic. I was so suspicious when you mentioned CRISPR. I was like, mm, okay, something is coming. Uh, Off we go, Yaram. But it's also like, it's it's a, a very short um, short story. Uh, what they did here and it, um, is that they engineered not only individual genes with CRISPR, but an entire chromosome. And what they did is that they reversed 90% of the chromosome. So they kept the end caps in the right direction and flipped everything in between uh, in the direct uh, the like the direction of it mm -hmm. um, and what that does is that during meiosis and recombination so when the two chromosomes align the one that is flipped doesn't fit the one that isn't flipped and so you don't have any crossover happening between these two so both chromosomes stay intact and don't rearrange and sometimes in plant breeding you want that because the rearrangement part is where sometimes you end up um, with like mixing up and breaking apart of certain yeah, traits, that, losing that, some traits that you want. Yeah, that or, or that, that you want to keep together, and they're important that both of them are present. And during the recombination, they might mix up and end up in different cells, and then get separated. And by just doing this switch around of one chromosome, you stop recombination from uh, from happening, stabilizing like the the relation of these genes to one another, and then. Um, yeah, con you can more easily continue your breeding, and that's pretty much. Uh, this is a, a breeding tool, but I found it interesting that you could just like flip around the insides of a chromosome. Like they said, like yeah, ninety percent of the chromosome was flipped, and that then um, helped with keeping these traits together. So from plant breeding application, now I have something about biorefineries in. Um, in plants, or in this case, in algae, um, and that's something that biorefineries very often mentioned, like uh, in in biotechnology, because instead of having a refinery that takes crude oil and makes that into like gas and diesel and whatnot, we say like now we can use organisms to make us valuable compounds. So they are biorefineries. But most of the times we just talk about standard biological processes that are happening there, and just to sort of have the analogy, we talk about them. In this case, they actually did something that a refinery would do which is a non-biological 
process of increasing the value of a uh, of a molecule um, and what they did is they used some algae that produced uh, oils and these um, un desaturated oils are in itself already like valuable but uh, they usually have to be modified when they when they are uh, used further and they introduced um, a non-biological catalyst in a little like vesicle in a little membrane thing that went into the cells and then within the algae cells would already catalyze this reaction of changing that biological derived oil molecule to the modified oil molecule that's more valuable then um, so literally doing a refinery job inside the cell mm -hmm. in a non-biological process within a biological system And so that's like the paper from Angewandte Chemie. So that's like a, a chemistry paper, but it's a combination uh -huh. of biology and uh, organic chemistry that led to this development. And of course, right now it's this is this is early. So like doing that at scale is another question. But just the fact that we can bring a working catalyst into the cell and they use a little a, a dye they couple that to a dye so they could actually follow it in a microscope introduce that to the cell and then have it do its catalyst job there um and, and create this valuable compound uh it's it's quite cool I, I have something that's not, I don't even know how to segue from biorefineries, Yoram, to be honest. But I want to mention something that somebody sent to us via Instagram, and I have not mentioned it over the last three weeks. But I mostly haven't mentioned it because I don't really understand what the paper is about. It's Material Letters, um, which is a very materials -y? <laughs> electricity, energy kind of paper. Um, and it's basically <laughs> about the production of a polymer electrode protective layer, which allows high cycling stability of the brittle electrode. And none of these words, like individually, they make sense to me, but as a, as a cluster, they mean nothing to me. Um, it says there's a strong connection across the electrode surface that gives enhanced electrochemical performance. Anyway, why all this is kind of relevant to us <laughs> is that the kind of slightly catchy in the context of this for me um, title of this is that it's a bryophyte like polymer layer protected supercapacitator electrode with enhanced cycling stability so based on that I'm assuming that this is good enhanced cycling stability <laughs> is a win for all of us it's a supercapacitator so that sounds great but what we really care about is that it's a bryophyte like and the attention was drawn I think the person who said this to me was even like this is a little bit of a stretch but the graphical abstract includes a picture of a bryophyte moss and then shows how they use the structure of moss in a 3D way to develop this 3D um, structure of the supercapacitator electrode. I think that's the, mm -hmm. the thing. So I'm just putting this out there as something that is beautiful plants, inspiring technology once again. Mm, yeah. That's and thanks for sending that in, Tom. <laughs> Um, from like a cool name like uh, supercapacitor and bryophyte in, uh, um, inspired, I um, f have another thing that I think you might like because it has a weird name. And this is a can of spinach. Do you want to guess what can of spinach is involved in? I think this would have been better segued from iron if I can guess rightly. Yeah. 
exactly. Um, this is something um, based on uh, iron and iron levels. So in this study, kind of spinach um, is a novel long coding, non-coding RNA that they found. Um, when they did a whole genome or like uh, transcriptomics on, on Arabidopsis plants grown under um, regular amounts of iron that were sufficient and deficient amounts of iron, so not enough iron. And then they looked at all of the transcripts and, and tried to figure out which ones of them change when um, you change the iron level. And mm-hmm. um, they found two um, long co- non-coding RNAs that weren't described before, and they called them can of spinach. And then they found that when you knock them out, the plants grow funny. And um, it doesn't make sense to go here into the details because they observed a couple of uh, phenotypes, a couple of changed behaviors of the plant, but we they don't understand yet what the function is. Um, but I like the name can of spinach, and so I asked the first author on, on Twitter uh, why the name and... Uh, that is uh, Ahmed Bakirbas, and he, antwo- uh, he answered me that um, there are already two iron-regulated transcription factors that are named Popeye mm-hmm. and Brutus. And so to follow this naming scheme, they decided to take can of spinach. And then they saw that uh, when they changed the, the amount of can of spinach, um, they saw also a um, reaction of the Popeye transcription factor. So if oh. you change can of spinach in the plant... Popeye also changes in the plant. I guess the transcription factor gets weaker when there's no can of spinach there, according to... I mean, that's now me interpreting that um, uh, because that would then fit with the entire image that they have in there. I'm just looking up who Brutus is and in that universe, it's kind of the the enemy of Popeye, I think. So presumably then Brutus and Popeye would have like antagonistic effects they would like interact or something but in a negative way would be my guess yeah i would i would think so um yeah but uh so yeah that's another one of the the weird um i love those names yeah I like. I mean, I. It's it's a bit frustrating because it's quite niche. Um, you have to know the references, and it's often quite culturally specific. Um, and sometimes it gets even language specific. Like, there's quite a lot of plant genes that are named after German, um, like words, which mm-hmm. then doesn't make sense if you are just looking at a three-letter acronym and you're trying to translate it back. I think there's one one of them which is um about youth. And what it's named after the Fountain of Youth in yeah, Germany. Jungbrunn. There we go. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's famous. And uh, yeah, I found one uh, today that about that was called, I think, Kipfel, which is a German baked good, but that was somewhere, like I think, a, in, in worms. A crescent, a crescent, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's less helpful, but I do find them quite charming. Yeah. Um, speaking of non-coding RNAs, is that where we're going? <laughs> I mean, that's where we were. <laughs> so there's an article that has just come out in the plant cell, and it's looking at a kind of weird thing, which is one of those, I don't think about that much. Hmm, that's an interesting question. How does that work? Kind of thing. So basically, when you think about the production of RNAs, the the standard thing that you think, um, if we're ignoring the plastid and the mitochondria, we think RNAs, they're made in the nucleus. Um, they're mm-hmm. sort of like, yeah, we have them transcribed from the DNA that's inside the nucleus. They get made and then they get like turfed out um, into the cytoplasm so they can go and make proteins, right? Yeah. And they do like a bit of maturation in between and so on, like 
Uh, but yeah, they get made, they mature, they go out. Yeah, and we know that like not all of them go out. Some of them stay in the nucleus, but by and large, like that's kind of the the thing that they're doing. And in fact, we have sort of this nuclear envelope around the DNA to keep it safe and protect it from other things. So generally speaking, things should not be coming into the nucleus and RNA should be getting out. But increasingly, it's becoming clear that RNA can also find its way back into the nucleus. And this is one of the questions of why is this happening? How is this happening? Sort of what's the what's the process that lets it come back in again? I mean, if, if you've got sort of a system that is not aiming to have just mass RNA movement back into the nucleus, is there some sort of import machinery, something that's specifically moving it back in? And also how is that um, sort of being controlled? So what are the signals involved in choosing which RNAs to bring back in? So the scientists who did this work, this is Yunfei Ma and colleagues, they actually used some viroids. So these are the circular RNAs of virus, these big viral RNAs, um, and they use viroids from, from sort of things that infect plants. And they use this to understand a little bit about the process of things that import into the nucleus. Because if you think about what a, a virus it wants to do, it wants to get its its genetic information integrated so that it can then start doing its thing and replicating. They also found a signal on the RNA, which is um, a C loop, and that was sort of found in the lots of the RNAs that were getting imported. So now this is kind of a clue, and they're looking to see if they can identify other RNAs in the cell that might have these C loops, which might indicate that they have this ability to be imported back into the nucleus and then they would want to look into sort of what the biological significance is of the sort of backwards movement of these RNAs um, and it has like obviously some important things as far as yeah here we have like this infection thing but also just sort of from a signaling point of view in the cell itself. Uh, I also have something that's about ring shapes and barriers and stuff moving through these barriers um Wait, what? <laughs> yeah uh it actually fits quite well with that like the the the, the movement of, of particles and a very important process that's now better understood so there in in wheat the crop there are there is a disease that's called stem rust and it's a fungal disease and it's very like devastating to agriculture and there's only a couple of um, wheat lines then have some resistance to this wheat rust and um, but now breeders are trying to get that trade into the lines that are actually used to to grow the, the wheat so the high production lines um, and now researchers um, have actually figured out the immune uh, like the immune response or how the plants get immune to this rust um, and there's been like a joint cooperation between the German group and the Chinese group, and that was published in Nature now. Um, so what they found is that there's like a specific type of the stem rust. It's, uh, it was discovered in 1999 in Uganda, and that's why it's called UG99. Um, and that is one that's specifically devastating to, uh, to crops. Uh, and now they looked at the wheat lines that are that have a resistance to that, and they found that there is a protein. It's called um, SR35. This is a receptor protein, and what this stem rust fungus does is that it injects small molecules uh, into the cell that it infects, and that then weakens the cell response, and then the, the, the fungus can take over the cell and then get nutrients out of it, and then in the end kill the entire plant. Um, 
But when SR35, the specific kind of that, is present, it can detect these small molecules from UG99, from the stem rust. And then it does a little like superhero assembly thing where a couple of these uh, SR35 come together, they form a ring, and that Mm -hmm. ring is a pore that integrates then in the cell membrane, and that kills the like triggers an um, uh, kill response of the cell, and then the entire cell dies and that stops the fungus from spreading because as it can't establish yeah. itself because this whatever it touches dies immediately and it can't get any nutrients out of it um and that's this is driving the immunity this is a kind of a pretty common response in plants like this hypersensitive cell death so mm-hmm. actually dying faster can be a massive benefit because you kind of sacrifice yourself and then stop yeah it can be fungi it can also be like viruses and you stop the spread yeah by dying faster and it's, it's something it's quite an interesting topic because yeah some some plants have responses but like even they're not like within the same species other cultivars might not have developed that resistance yet so then you can sort of find out how these resistance works by comparing different cultivars which do and don't respond in the same way and that's exactly what they did so they they this sr35 these proteins they are found in pretty much all the wheat varieties but they have small changes in the their receptor binding capability so they not all of them can discover these small molecules from the fungus so now they took this uh, the gene sequence from the sr35 in a wheat variety that is resistant and they could put that into a different wheat variety and then give it that resistance so obviously oh, cool. that's a now um, a major finding to engineer immunity against this fungus in uh, other wheat lines by all kinds of breeding methods you can could bring in specifically that gene now into the production lines and then give them the resistance against that uh, that wheat rust and it would also mean that when if the wheat rust uh, the, the stem rust evolves and changes to small molecules that uh, there's now a known target to look for to maybe change that and um, yeah find a, yeah. a new fitting SR35 that can again discover these and then uh, trigger the cell death. So uh, that's I why mean, I think- now that we've entered the golden age of sort of structures with these kind of like alpha fold things like structures mm-hmm. and understanding structures of receptors, maybe they can even engineer things to, you know, notice other pathogens or... yeah. That's yeah. super cool. That's a really cool story. Yeah, and I really like that it has this like assembly thing, like superheroes, like they assemble the ring uh, with their powers combined, they kill the cell and it, it really <laughs> stop feels like the Captain Planet. Did you yeah. watch Captain Planet ever? Like, Earth, wind, power. Yeah, but in this case, like SR35, 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 and then there's not a lot of diversity. And then also, like what they do is just like. Just like start scuttling their own ship, just start <laughs> yeah. punching holes in the wall, and exactly. they punch yeah. a hole in the drywall, and then the whole house collapses. But the, the stem rust doesn't like it's, it. Rather, the whole the whole room collapses, and not the entire house. The house still stands. That's the point. Um, I mean, speaking of plants doing damage, actually, Yoram, I am shocked that you did not bring this one before I did. It's something that I found just now on IFL Science, and it's a houseplant controlling a machete-wielding robotic arm (laughs) for science. Um, There's videos, so definitely go and check it out. Um, It's a researcher, David Bowen, who's also an artist. He's previously done similar things by hooking up... um, 
a plant to let it pilot a drone. And basically what it's doing is just sort of mapping resistance across the leaves of plants. Um, so as these change, he has developed some software that then makes these signals give real-time movements to the joints of a robot arm. Um, so the, the reason for the robot arm to be holding a machete is not super clear. I think it just looks dramatic. Um, <laughs> but it's it's super quite amazing to watch. I definitely recommend looking at the slashing philodendron. <laughs> Cat fact. And today's cat fact is the fact that bears are not cats. And that's literally one of the findings. Um, they have, there has been an investigation in the correct diet for bears. And it's often believed in by zoos and people who deal with bear diets that bears are carnivores, just like cats. And so they give them a very high protein-rich diet, uh, like a, a diet very high in protein. So a protein-rich diet, just like you would give a cat. Um, mm. uh, but then they observe that in zoos, bears die about 10 years earlier than they would die in the wild. What? Um, and now... When did they... Wait, sorry. Sorry, when did they notice this? Because that's a really big clue. Like, usually animals in, like should live a lot longer in captivity. I mean, it could... Right? You, you know, the, like, maybe it could be also, like, movement, like, lack of movement. They can't roam as far, so maybe that's yeah, also bad for them. Yeah, but mostly those things keep them alive, honestly. Like, unless they get a... Like, mostly, you know, the lack of movement means that they don't wear themselves out and fall over and die. Most animals in the wild just, like, <laughs> fall... Like, there's predators, there's not enough food, like... Yeah. Okay, anyway. Yeah, but uh, apparently um, zoos believe that uh, bears like high-protein diets. Um, but now... Um, a group of, or like, I don't know if it's a group of researchers or an individual researcher, they offered bears a variety of food, like different bears, um, different varieties of food in abundance and had the bears pick. And, uh, for example, in panda bears, which are not exactly carnivores, uh, so they already get bamboo, but they often get the, the protein-rich parts of the bamboo. But mm. these bears, when they had a choice, they picked rather the carbohydrate-rich parts of the bamboo. Um, and other bears that were given um, a variety of meats and fruits and vegetables, they would go for avocados that are high in fat, because that mimics also the high fat content of the diet in the wild that they have. So mm -hmm. they also don't go for the proteins. And um, they couple that with also some observations in nature about grizzly bears, um, where it was believed for a long time that they pretty much eat for a part of the year, they mostly eat salmon. Um, they would just like what was haven't believed. We, haven't we discussed this? They eat a lot of berries actually at the same time. Did yeah, we not I, discuss this at one point? Yeah, exactly. That was uh, brought up there in the story as well, that they not only eat the salmon, but they eat uh, stretches of salmon and then they go out and for, uh, forage actually for quite a long time to go for small berries. And that gives them overall um, a fitness boost of having a diverse um, like a diverse diet that also makes them more resilient if one of the food sources uh, is, is not found. Um, and yeah, and that should change the way zoos feed their bears according to this investigation. Um, and don't give them high protein cat food and instead have them maybe choose or like decide, give them like specific on the kind of bear that you have more fat or more carbohydrates instead of, of going for the protein stuff. Just decide what kind of bear you have. Yes. <laughs> Is it a panda bear? 
<laughs> I mean, I was surprised at like the, the story that say like bears are not actually carnivorous, and then uh, they looked at panda bears. Where I'm like, yeah, they're famously known for not yeah, they're being, not carnivorous <laughs> yeah, for eating only bamboo. But then it was about the protein content in the bamboo, and and often what sort of what what they're offered um, is not what they would pick themselves. But then I also wondered like. If I would given a variety of foods, and I could pick myself. I would yeah, eat cheeseburgers and crisps, stuff. and yeah. and I would not eat the balanced, nutritious diet that I would like, um, or that yeah. I should have. That I would rather take. So the I stuff. think that's the thing. Like this is choice is very nice, but like then we have to see which of these birds bears lives longer, right? Like that's the ultimate optimal health of a bear is who who does the does the avocado smashing bear really live longer than the salmon eating bear i'm not sure like at the end yeah i know that it will be really hard for the for the avocado eating bear to do a down payment on a house um yes, because yes. of all the avocado toast um i also saw something i think a couple of weeks ago that i mean this is bears are not cat it was something that bees are fish was the headline. Um, it's basically because there's a protection act and it's focused on fishing and fish. Um, and in order to get small things like insects, so basically the, the fish and wildlife, it never covered insects. So when it was made, it had sort of like big animals that were b more clear and people cared about, but it didn't include things like bees that at that stage people just like didn't really consider to be real animals. I think I'm I'm sort of editorializing a little bit here, and just now they've decided that for the sake of you know protection, this act does in fact include bees, and they used the precedent of like an aquatic snail that was also like I think there was like some aquatic snails and then like some land snails, and they were like, well look, a snail is already included. If a snail can be a fish, then a bee can also be a fish, and based on that, now there's no such thing as a fish, but there is such thing as a bee. I think with that, uh, we are at the end of this week's show. Um, uh, a bee is a fish and bears are not cats. And if you want to get in touch with us and tell us more things that are not other things or that are other things, you can reach me on Please Twitter. Don't. That's at Plants Pipettes. I don't really want to hear about that. Um, but you can reach me at, uh, at Plants and Pipettes on <laughs> Facebook. It's very hard to talk today on Facebook and Instagram, and we also have a website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.